What I'd like to do is just give a real brief overview of two main things. One is just a little bit of background about the text itself. And a second, the second part is what are the different interpretive models. In other words, there's a lot of ways that this book has been interpreted, so I'd like to give you some of that information so that next week you have a little bit of knowledge about the words that are being used or just the conversation that's going on. One way I'd like to start actually is just defining what eschatology means, because eschatology may not be a word that you're familiar with. Eschatology simply refers to end times, and eschatological conversation isn't just religious. You see it all the time. Nuclear holocaust, that's a type of eschatology. Um, are we going to wipe ourselves off the planet? You, there's all kinds of eschatology. It's religious or secular. Okay? But tonight, we'll just briefly talk about uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation is, is, is a very difficult book to understand, and it deals with eschatological themes. It's not the only place, though, where eschatology occurs in the Bible. So that's one thing you have to keep in mind. We do have some agreement by the scholars. We agree that it was authored by a guy named John and that he was probably a Jewish Christian. This is important because in the early church there were Jewish Christians and there were also Gentile Christians, and this was actually a source of uh, contention for a while in the early church. There's some debate as to who it is. Is it John the Apostle? Is it a guy named John the Elder? In the book of Acts we have a guy named John Mark. Or is it even John the Baptist? In order for it to be John the Baptist, it had to be a really early dating. But nonetheless, so those are four different theories on who this John was. Let me give you some of the arguments against John the Apostle, just so you know. The, the traditional perspective is that it's John the Apostle, but there are some reasons as to why we think it isn't. Um, he doesn't invoke his apostolic authority. Normally, if it's an apostle, they normally identify themselves as apostles, and he doesn't identify himself as one. Uh, in 21.14, he actually talks about the 12 apostles, which would be a weird way of talking about yourself, to talk about tw the other 12. He would have been quite old uh, at the time that we think it was written, sometime after the 90s, 90 to 100. The early church leaders actually disputed this claim. They, the early church leaders didn't agree that it was John the Apostle, so nobody really was sure. Um, but we do agree, however, that it was, the guy was Jewish, um, and we know that because of the style in which it was written. There's three main, uh, again, dates of authorship, just really briefly. The earliest is around 65. Um, this was during the reign of Nero, which was a time of heavy Christian persecution. However, that persecution did not actually spread to the provinces, and the reason that's important is because this was written uh, in one of the provinces, actually John at Patmos. So it's also addressed to the provinces of Asia, so it's unclear as to whether or not, uh, since persecution wasn't occurring there, why would John have written it to people there, is the question. Um, 70, again, very unlikely, and probably the most likely dating sometime around 95, um, although some have even said it might have been written later. Okay, so that's just a really, really quick background. There's a lot of scholarship that goes into that. There are some people who think the book of Revelation was written as one contained book. There are others who think that it's kind of piecemeal, that a, an author saw it and put it together and organized it in a different way. And there's so all kinds of interesting arguments if you're interested in that kind of stuff, which most of you probably aren't, so we're not going to go through it. Okay, uh, interpretive issues. Uh, its main theme uh, historically has been, uh, it's been identified as a work of Jewish apocalypticism. This is a movement 
that occurred prior to Jesus, in fact. If you've heard of the stories of the Maccabees, there is a genre of Jewish apocalypticism, and it fits many of those categories very, very well. So, we, so many um, scholars have classified it as a work of Jewish apocalypticism. That's, however, not accurate because John is, in fact, a Christian. So it's some kind of mixture of Jewish-Christian apocalypticism. It's its own thing. Uh, another thing I wanted to point out is there's actually a difference in, in biblical studies between prophecy and prediction. It's subtle, but it's important. Prophecy, in the traditional Hebrew sense, typically refers to preaching, not predicting future events. Okay? So there's a difference. Apocalypticism, on the other hand, tends to function predictively. In other words, apocalyptic works like to predict, whereas other more prophetic works are more about preaching, not the gospel, because in the Old Testament, not preaching the gospel. But whenever you see prophetical books, they're often, it's in the context of teaching, of preaching about God. Okay? It's important to keep that in mind. Revelation actually becomes less prophetic and more predictive as the author moves away from events. So at the very beginning, he's, he's addressing seven churches. So you might say at that, at that point, it's more prophetic. He's, he's actually talking about people he knows. Okay, he's talking about actual events. But as he becomes more allegorical or metaphorical or starts talking about things that are symbolic, it becomes more predictive in its essence. Uh, many books in the Bible are actually hard to identify, and I just want to point this out because, again, apocalyptic themes appear throughout. Okay? They're not just confined to Revelation, but it's the place you find them the most. Um, Daniel, for example, uh, was most likely written much later than most Christians know. Uh, it's probably written around 165. Why is this important? Because later, when I get to talking about some of the interpretive models, they actually use the book of Daniel as if, as if it was written like in the 700s as treating it as if, as if it's talking about prophecies that are going to come true today. But again, I'll come back to this idea in a, a little bit later, but it fits in with the whole controversy between is it really talking about prophecy in the Hebrew sense, or is it talking about prophecy in the way that we like to talk about it as, yeah, this is actually predicting, you know, when it talks about Magog, it's talking about Russian tanks and things like that, okay? So these are important things we have to address, okay? Because how many of you have heard of the Left Behind series? <laughs> Right, that's probably your most familiar introduction to the book Revelation, but it's probably the least credible in terms of its interpretive outlook. But again, we're not gonna we're gonna, not gonna debate that tonight. But you need to keep that in mind. Um, how you interpret the Bible will influence your perspective on Revelation. Real quick, general interpretive models. So there are four. There are more than four. There are four super broad categories that I'm just gonna address real quick tonight about how people have interpreted this book. Again, the early church didn't actually deal a whole lot with the book Revelation. In fact, at, uh, when they met at Nicaea to start talking about how they were, what books were going to be included in the canon, there was a big argument about it, whether this should, should even be included. Uh, if you go back in the history, you look at St. Augustine and other church fathers, they actually argued that John was crazy, that he was insane, that they shouldn't have it in the canon. So this has been controversial for a long time, uh, not just for today. Um, there's a big gap in church history where practically nobody talks about the book of Revelation. It just kind of becomes 
uninteresting. Uh, and then it starts to pick up again, especially the last two to 300 years in the Protestant and evangelical communities. It's just been huge. So the preterists, uh, they like to argue that the meaning is confined to the past. It is only talking about its historical setting. Uh, it does not talk about anything in the future. It does not represent anything of the future. So the, you know, the symbols in Revelation aren't referring to future tanks or nuclear missiles or anything like that. And that it just reflects the author's historical setting. So John is writing to his own community. That's it. And again, within all of these, these four general models, there's just a wide variety of okay? This is just real broad. The historicists, uh, they think that the book Revelation is a forecast for real future events, uh, that events in Revelation can be correlated to real events in the future, and that Revelation is a real history, both past, present, and future. Okay, so for the historicists, it's talking about real things that were happening during the time of John and beyond, and that the events written actually correlate and correspond to things that are going to happen in the future. Okay? They will readily admit to you, though, that we've been wrong. So, for example, uh, the Antichrist, all of you have heard the idea of the Antichrist. Uh, the historicist camp will say, well, yeah, I guess for a while we thought the Antichrist was Saddam, but that turned out to be wrong. And we thought it was, you know, Henry Kissinger, and that turned out to be wrong, too. Um, so th they're more willing to admit that kind of, hey, it's just a continual search. We're just looking, you know, but the next camp, they won't admit that to you. Okay? The futurists... They're very similar to the historicist perspective, except that they take chapters 4 through 20 as occurring after the rapture. Okay? And the rapture is an idea, a uh, relatively new idea in theology, it's about 200 years old. And it is this idea that there will be a tribulation, but before that tribulation occurs, all the Christians will be taken out, and then the tribulation occurs. Then there's, this is the period of the Antichrist and the Beast, and then there's Armageddon, and then there's what's called this millennial reign. Okay? The, the historicists, they don't, they don't go that far. Okay? They don't talk about a rapture. The futurist camp are the ones who talk about this idea of the rapture. Um, it's also the most popular interpretive model. So Timothy LaHaye, Left Behind series, all those books today are working out of this interpretive model. Okay? Uh, symbolic revelation does not depict any past events, nor does it predict any future events. And they argue that the book itself is deeply symbolic and that ultimately the symbols cannot be grounded. In other words, you can think about it this way. Their fear is that you can take, if you try and take a symbol and you try and make it one thing, you've basically taken it out of the category of symbolism. In other words, there are some symbols that are so deep that you could never find their true meaning. They're inexhaustible. And that's how they argue the book of Revelation should be read. It's just this inexhaustible collection of symbols and metaphors and allegories which can always relate. They don't refer to specific things. Okay? So they might talk about the interplay of good and evil. They're symbols, not actual literal things. Okay. Another kind of camp is called millennialism, and there's four basic types. This refers to the belief that Christ will rule for a thousand years on earth. Again, the people in the futurist camp are a part of this. So the basic timeline is you have uh, chapters 1 through 4, 
which is addressing the, the churches. And then at the end of four, uh, in their view, you have a rapture. And then there's a tribulation with the Antichrist. And then next is millennial reign, which begins after this battle of Armageddon, which takes place back out in the Middle East. And then after Christ physically rules on earth for a thousand years, then there's the final judgment. Okay, so that's, if you've ever heard the word millennialism, that's what it refers to. Okay, it's a very prescribed series of events. Dispensational premillennialism. Man, these are big words. <laughs> it's associated with the Futurist School. This is the main view of the Left Behind series. Christ's return ushers in the millennial reign. And for them, history is divided up into seven dispensations. The way these dispensations are divided up, in my opinion, is completely arbitrary, but nonetheless, I'm going to show them to you. The, a dispensation, all that is, is God's judgment between two distinct periods of time. So the first dispensation was the dispensation of innocence, which ends with them being kicked out of Eden. The second is conscience, and that ends with the flood. The third is human government. And that ends with the confusion of language at Babel. Human government, or I'm sorry, separation, the exodus from Egypt. Uh, law, this, the, the uh, dispensation of law ends at the death of Christ. So that's the Torah and the temple and all that. And then the grace is the period we're in now. It's a dispensation. It's also referred to as the age of the church. Okay. After that is the millennial reign, which is... The thousand-year reign. Okay, so this is what dispensationalism is. These dispensations, these periods of time. Again, very popular school of thought in America. Talbot Theological Seminary, Biola. Dallas Theological Seminary. I mean, these are major seminaries in America that produce a lot of pastors. And this is, this is where I actually came out of Chicago. The dispensation of grace, just want to talk about that real quick because that's the one we're in. The age of the church. Interestingly, it's God's secondary plan. You'll notice it ends right when Christ is, dies in resurrection. And so what they actually like to, to think of it as is a parenthetical time. So during this time, you have the age of the church. Once the church is raptured out, you now have God's original salvation plan, which comes back into play for the Jews, which is why the whole tribulation Armageddon script has to work itself out. Very interesting. So the grace suspension is further divided into seven parts. I don't think I, I, we don't need to go into it. It's not important. But the division is based on a metaphorical reading of the seven churches. Again, um, they divide up the age of the church based on their metaphorical reading of the seven churches in the first four chapters of Revelation. Historical premillennialism. Uh, they believe in the rapture, the Antichrist, and all that, but they reject the idea of dispensationalism. So they reject that completely. Uh, they see the seven churches in the beginning as actual historical churches that John was specifically addressing. And for them, the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation. So the main idea here is that dispensational premillennialist rapture occurs before the tribulation. Historical premillennialist rapture occurs after. Okay. And you may have heard these kinds of arguments, right, in your church Bible study or your parents arguing about it. Okay. This is the source of where it's coming from. Post-millennialism is actually an older Protestant perspective. It's not very common today. Revelation, if you've ever, how many of you read Revelation? 
Okay. You'll notice there's a constant theme of the number seven. Seven bowls, seven seals, seven scrolls. Okay, this is actually a literary device used in the Jewish apocalypse, used in that genre. <laughs> I just get tongue-tied on some of the words. Um, it's similar to the idea we talked about in here where 40 days and 40 nights doesn't actually correlate or doesn't, it's not actual 40 days and 40 nights, it's a way of saying a really long time. It's another device that is common in the tradition where if you really, you know, in English we'd, we'd put like five exclamation points behind it. Okay, well, they didn't have exclamation points, so they would recapitulate the theme. Seven of this, seven of this, seven of this. So they don't read any of the bowls or the scrolls as anything that's going to happen. It's just recodifying an idea. Armageddon is not a real battle, but a metaphorical one that occurs every day. The battle between good and evil. So it's not an actual place or time. This is what happens from John's time, happens today. It will happen 5,000 years from now. Okay? Uh, Christ's millennial reign is not a literal thousand years. And the idea here is very interesting. In their perspective, it's not any, it doesn't have anything to do with an actual number of years. They actually believed, or some of them believed, that you would recognize the millennial reign of Christ when you saw the mass conversion of the leaders of the world and the people of the world. They saw that as the turning point, that you were in that age. Okay, but it's not an actual prescribed amount of time. Okay, it's very Protestant. And the judgment occurs after this millennial reign. Okay, so some denominations that used to identify themselves as this were the Presbyterians, were post-millennial. I don't know if they still are. I don't think they are, but they were at one point. All millennialism, uh, no future, literal reign of Christ, hence the awe, right? Atheism, no God, same thing here. All millennialism, no reign of Christ. Again, they share many of the commonalities with post-millennialism. And for them, Christ already reigns for Christians, therefore there's no need for a millennial. Which you might actually say is a criticism of dispensationalism. Christ is the salvation plan, so why does God need different dispensations with different salvation plans? Is there, like, you have all these different views about it, but is there one that, that's the most accurate to Scripture? Or is there one that's like the earliest one that's like, this is what you know, the early generations used to believe? Or are they all just a matter of opinion? A little bit of all of that, actually. Um, we, what we have to talk about at some point is how you interpret Scripture. If you're someone who interprets it literally, where every single word is exactly the way it is, then you might identify yourself, right, as a dispensational premillennialist because, you know, you're reading it exactly for as it is. A lot of it depends on how do you even view the scriptures. Once you figure that out, I don't, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't say that, no, I would say there are some wrong ways to interpret the book, but it, it's hard to answer that question because it's a little bit of opinion, but it's also a little bit of theological agenda. So you have to realize the early church felt that Christ was going to be returning right away. And he didn't. And if you read Paul and if you read a lot of the other writers, and you'll see this kind of angst, right? They really believed that Jesus was coming back right away, okay? and he didn't. Over time, you see different levels of interest in this book and in, and in eschatological thinking, especially when major events come up, 9-11, right? There was an increase in this kind of activity. Um, but if you go further back, the plague was, a, hey, is this the end of the world? Or even, even things like the switch from 99 to 2000. 
right? Those were, those were times when Christians really thought this is the end, you know. Um, again, it's, it's a little bit of all three of your options. I mean, I would say to answer your question more specifically that there are some interpretive views that really just are not right. They're just, they're, you have to accept too much to get it, to get into it. But smart people think these things, so... Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it was interesting because even like like the first thousand years after Christ, they thought they were literally in that millennium. Like that was the dominant view. Where when they read that millennium, like this is you know because they kind of when they thought that hey we're in that period, and so around the turn of the second millennium, everyone's like wait a minute, like, why are we still around for what's going on here? So yeah, I mean I think Jeremy's point is really good because it's just changed so much throughout history, so it's real difficult to finish it out. Yeah, and I would say that, I mean, you have even early church leaders who were very skeptical of saying the book of Revelation actually points to future events. So you've had both perspectives. You've had perspectives throughout the tradition which reinforced the idea that these were specific things. And you've had people throughout the tradition who have said, no, you're crazy for thinking that. So it's, it's complicated. Yes, John? You said that if you took a literal view, that might lead you to be a dispensationalist, right? Or I know you linked them, but isn't it more true that dispensationalism is reading into the text something that isn't there? So even if you are a literalist, there's still plenty of room for you not to be dispensationalist because a dispensational view, if I'm right, didn't even start coming out until like the 1850s. I completely agree with that criticism. However, if you go to their website, they will identify themselves as biblical literalists. So not all literalists are dispensationalists, but dispensationalists. Correct. Yeah, and there's actually a website you can go check out if you're ever bored. Um, <laughs> and they have what's called the Armageddon time clock. And um, they have, we all laugh, but people you know, really get freaked out over this stuff. Um, they, they track about a hundred or so different events around the world, everything from a world leader, a new world leader somewhere. And they basically have a clock where they, put, they, they give you a number about how close you are to the rapture. Okay? So the higher the number, the more likely the rapture is to occur. Regardless of the fact that Jesus himself says you will not know the time or the day, um, this does not deter them. And if you go to their website... Um, they, will, they will list their reasons as to why they are correct. And one of those, and I, that's the only reason as I linked it, is not because I would necessarily link them as literalists, at, far from it, right? But they identify themselves in that vein of inerrancy, all those things. So, yeah, Monique. How is the book of Revelation like, substantiated as like, inspired by God if we don't even know who wrote it? Well, we don't know who wrote a lot of the books in the Bible. The reality is, I just want to highlight, you know, because there's often there's a tension, right, between biblical studies scholarship, where it hardly ever meets, like, the common Bible, the common day Bible study. You know, like, you never hear these things. What's important to remember is that when they did decide what books in the New Testament would be canonical, it was included. So after great debate, it was included. And to, to answer your question super quick, you have to realize that the Jewish tradition was an oral tradition for a very long time. So, likewise, it was very common in the ancient world for someone to write a letter or to write a book and to use the name of a famous person. Uh, so, anonymous writing was common. There was nothing wrong with it. It wasn't, you know, wasn't against the rules. 
And so those are, but I mean, those are larger issues that kind of go into the construction of ancient texts. And we can have a whole different series on that. That, that is super interesting. But uh, again, so just my reflections, the interpretive models, they vary greatly, as you saw. They, they're just huge. They're all over the place. Um, they, they fluctuate between a, some idea of literalism and symbolism. There's also, and we won't have time, but literary criticism has a lot to say about what this whole book is talking about and where does it fit in its genre and those kinds of things. Um, but one thing you know, that we'll have to keep in mind is what is the relation between a symbol and it occurring as a real event? Or is there no connection at all? I would encourage you this week uh, to prepare for next Sunday to actually sit down and read the book of Revelation <laughs> uh, and come with some questions. If you would like, I can email you this really, really short and not exhaustive. It would have to be 2,000 slides. Um, but if you would like, I can send this to you. You can kind of keep that in mind. Um, but I would encourage you to come with some questions because Jill's dad actually has uh, written a book. It's a collection of his pastoral series or sermons on this topic. Um, so he's done a lot of research and he's done a lot of thinking about it. So I'd encourage you to, to be prepared for that. Are there any last questions at all? Yes. Is there any believers who believe the book is symbolic but it doesn't restrict it from literally happening? Sure, I, I, I don't I doubt it. If it doesn't, you could create a new one. I mean, that, that, that's really the truth about it is, is you know, there are going to be people who, are, who say, well, I'm part of this, but I'm part of this, and there are going to be others who are just, we're going to get all back into this later in the summer, and um, I'm going to present you with some really extreme options, uh, and then we're going to talk about those. So, great. So, I hope that was short enough. All right. And I hope you all understand now. <laughs>